you for setting your podcast out of 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from the Melman Cassignetti offices in downtown Washington, D.C. And after two weeks away, the circus has returned to join us here in the nation's capital. The Senate gaveled in Monday to vote on a State Department nominee, but the real action is all off the floor. Two parties, two tracks for delivering trillions of dollars in infrastructure spending. Track one, bipartisan, regular order, roads and bridges. Track two, partisan, Democrats only, using the reconciliation budget process to get around the Senate filibuster for what is being termed human infrastructure, universal preschool, tuition assistance, and child care. We're already halfway through July. That August tradition of the August recess looms large. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. And oh yeah, the national debt limit expires at the end of the month too. And so I'm happy to have some help to sort it all out. My reliable colleagues here at the firm, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas, as we go through 2021 in 21 minutes. Bruce, David, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. It's uh, great to be with you in the office. Dean, were you just quoting the theme song from Smokey and the Bandit? <laughs> you got me, Bruce. That is, uh, that is a Jerry Reed original right there. And Bruce, I'm going to start with you on the bipartisan infrastructure plan because it's a real question for Republicans. You've got five committed Republican senators, but you need five more plus all 50 Democrats to overcome the filibuster. So why are Republicans going to agree to a trillion dollars in roads and bridges to make it easier for Democrats to turn around and pass as much as three and a half trillion in social spending in a completely partisan process? Well, first of all, infrastructure is politics version of ice cream. Everybody loves infrastructure. Everybody's got bridges and roads and other things in their districts. And so for some, for, for many of these folks, uh, you remember Donald Trump was talking about infrastructure and he was willing to spend 2x whatever Hillary Clinton said she was willing to spend. So first, for a lot of folks, the opportunity to fix things that need fixing is what they signed up for. It's their job. Number two, I think there are many Republicans who don't want to be against all the infrastructure and if the bipartisan bill failed, the Dems would attempt in their reconciliation package to put not only the vegetables, but also the ice cream. So the Republicans would like to get credit for doing the good stuff and be able to vote against the stuff they don't want to do. If it's in one package, they don't have that luxury. If it's in two packages, they do. Third, I think there are some Republicans who are hoping that by passing the bipartisan bill that's paid for, uh, they can peel a cinema or a Senator Manchin off the Democrats' reconciliation need all 50 Dems package. Well, that's the trick. I mean, it's the high wire act of not letting the politics of the partisan reconciliation process bleed over into the bipartisan process because you can already hear activists on the right and deficit hawk types are already saying you're getting your lunch eaten by these Democrats who are not only going to spend a ton of money in reconciliation, they're going to jack taxes up to pay for it. Yeah, for what it's worth, I don't think the fight are between Republicans who don't want to see the bipartisan bill because they don't like the idea of spending on infrastructure or how it's paid for. I think the folks who are leaning against the bipartisan bill are the folks who don't want to see Joe Biden have any wins and who will believe that we will take back the House and we could take back the Senate. And why give uh, the uh, administration a signature massive accomplishment that is bipartisan? That's where I think the Republican dynamic is. I don't see Republicans trying to block the bipartisan bill for fear that somehow that enables the reconciliation bill. 
And David, the House and Senate both in play in the 22 midterms because Speaker Pelosi has only a four-seat margin in the House. The Senate's even Stevens. So how does she get this done? Because she can't pass bipartisan without getting the reconciliation partisan package through at almost the same time. Progressives won't go for it, right? Dean, I hate saying that there are indispensable people in in Washington, but I think Speaker Pelosi may be the indispensable person in this high wire act that that you referred to. I thought you were going to say Joe Manchin. No? (laughs) No, Joe Joe Manchin (laughs) thought that too. I think that it's mind boggling to me how you keep everybody um, sort of rowing in the same direction here. But it's something that, that she's done well, that she's done for a long time. And this may be her toughest challenge uh, to date. What I've been picking up is is basically a constant communication between the speaker and individual members and groups, uh, small groups of members in her caucus. And the message that is coming out of those um, is don't draw red lines. Give us the, the ability to uh, go through this negotiation. If we've got members of the, uh, the Democratic caucus who are saying, you know, they, this needs to be in there or this can't be in there, and all of a sudden, the three, your, your three votes are gone very quickly. So, uh, you know, again, she is saying this. I know um, Chairman Yarmouth of the Budget Committee has been saying the uh, same thing. Don't draw those red lines. Give us some space and trust us. And I, I've been saying this to a lot of people this week. Recently, both uh, Congressman uh, Jim Cooper, who is from uh, Nashville and is a uh, longtime blue dog, and Congresswoman Jayapal, who is the leader of the Progressive Caucus, have been saying similar things in that they need to uh, try to trust each other to work together to see if they can get something done. I think that's the one place where everybody agrees you've got to have something done at the end of the day. If, if nothing happens, that's a failure, and that's a recipe for losing the House. So just game this out a little bit because you, you do have these two-track process running concurrently. The best case scenario, it seems to me, from the Democratic perspective, is you get a bipartisan infrastructure bill completely passed through the Senate with at least 60 votes to overcome the filibuster, and you get a budget resolution along with the Voterama on the, on the Senate floor. You get that budget resolution with the instructions passed through the Senate before they leave on the August recess. And then you come back, Pelosi holds the bipartisan deal in the House while they figure out the reconciliation process at the same time. The only thing I would uh, question is I'm not sure everything in the House gets kicked to the fall. The House is only scheduled to be in for, for the last two weeks in July before they go for the recess. I'm being told it is likely that recess will be uh, delayed at least one week and maybe longer. And that depends on what's coming over from the Senate. It is a tall order to get both the budget and, and the infrastructure bill through the Senate here. I, I think it's possible. Uh, and then, you know, the House can obviously move much faster. What takes the Senate two weeks to do, the House can get done in a couple of days. So we may see some action prior to the August recess, maybe on the budget. Would If I had to put money on it, I'd say maybe uh, getting something done on the budget before they leave for August. Well, they've got a lot to do. I mean, as our colleague Mike Robinson reminded me before I came in here to talk to you guys, the House is not going to take up the Senate product. They are going to put together their own product here, uh, starting with Chairman DeFazio at the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. That, that's correct. There, there will be no rubber stamps 
I think going in either direction here, everybody's going to put their mark on it, but this will be done at the highest levels of the uh, leadership table. And those discussions are already going on here. While the Senate has been at the center of the attention this week, uh, Speaker Pelosi's, my understanding, is keeping in constant touch with uh, Senator Schumer and others. Uh, over on the Senate side to to make sure that uh, she's representing the people's house. Well, the first step, it seems, in the reconciliation process, this is the Democrats' only process, seems to be uh, at least coming into focus. Three and a half trillion dollars. They need a top line number. Here's as much as you can spend in that budget resolution. But it's not clear if everyone, including, most importantly, Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, the two Democrats that they have to have in the Senate to get anything done, uh, if that three and a half trillion is going to hold or is that going to come down over time? I think that remains to be seen. Uh, you know, Senator Sanders, up until the announcement, was pushing for a six trillion dollar bill. So he, I'm sure he is making the case that he has already come down quite a bit. I suspect there'll be a lot of horse trading that that's going on now. Obviously, the president um, is already personally pitching in to, to lobby for this package. I suspect there will be changes from from what you're seeing, Dean. Could it come down a little? Yes, but it can't come down too much because that's when you lose the progressives in the House and in the Senate as well. So this is like a Rubik's Cube trying to get this thing to work. It's a Rubik's Cube with a lot of moving pieces. And one of the biggest is the debt limit is expiring at the end of July. Now, this may be more more smoke than fire. It's something that's consumed a lot of oxygen. It is an artificial uh, limit that Congress has to come back and reauthorize periodically. We're at $28 trillion dollars. Uh, in national debt and counting. Is this something, uh, Treasury can often exercise extraordinary measures and maybe they can carry us up through the fall, but is is this going to come to anything like debt limit battles have in the past or are we just going to blow by this? Well, you can't blow by it, but the idea that they would uh, default seems as remote today as it seemed every other time, including the few times where it felt like maybe they weren't going to default If you had to bet, as Wall Street is doing, everybody is betting that they'll find a way to kick the can again. I think we're well past the limit, but they suspended its meaning anything until uh, the time frame that we're talking about here. Extraordinary measures only buy you another month or a few months. Uh, But most people believe that there is still an adequate 60-plus sane caucus in the Senate and in the House uh, who will agree that if Congress has already spent the money, then trying to say, but the, you know, we're over the debt limit, so now we've got to unspend it, is not rational policy. I, I presume we will not default. Well, when when Trump was in the White House and we had uh, we had both uh, branches of Congress, we did kind of blow by it, didn't we? Well, uh, it's no, uh, or at least not with enough time that it meant anything in the marketplace. The one when we when uh, our debt got downgraded, when the uh, Tea Party. Had, had kind of emerged in the House early on prior to leading to the super committee and the sequestration and all that fun in 2012 and 13. A lot of folks were hanging around then President Obama's neck. The, uh, the phrase that he used of it would be a failure of leadership to extend the debt ceiling. And so they said, great, it's a failure of leadership. And he, to his credit as president, said, yeah, you know, my bad. I didn't, uh, I was wrong to have said that now that I'm president. I think we shouldn't do what I said that we should do when I was senator. I just, you hear from Senator McConnell and others, there's no gain to be had. You're not going to win anything um, fighting the debt seal. That is 100% wrong, Bruce. And I think the only person who is truly excited 
for the debt ceiling uh, deadline to be upon us is uh, Republican leader McCarthy, who I think will be using the debt ceiling amongst many attacks against uh, Democrats as he tries to become Speaker of the House in the midterms next year. So I think he's chomping at the bit. And uh, when a house is this closely divided, you just never know what might make the difference. Well, there are a few things uh, otherwise going on on the Hill. One thing that seems to be getting more and more traction is the idea of antitrust, of increasing competition. And most of that is focused in the tech sector uh, with these behemoth companies, uh, Alphabet, Google, Facebook. Bruce, President Biden put out an executive order uh, here just recently on competition policy. Lena Khan has taken the chairmanship of the FTC. In fact, uh, Facebook has sought her recusal from <laughs> reviewing their specific case because she's had some pretty, uh, pretty harsh words for, uh, for Facebook in particular. What do you see? What's going to happen? What's going to come out of this executive order on competition policy? What can the president really do by executive action here? And is this going to propel any action on the Hill to get something actually in the books? Great question, Dean. And, and it's even bigger than that. If you think about you have Congress with six different legislative vehicles to try to tighten up and or uh, change the rules for antitrust policy. You have this sweeping executive order on competition policy. You've got U.S. states uh, often bringing suits against uh, Google and, and Apple and Amazon and trying to be antitrust and competition policy vigilant themselves. And you have nations around the world, including the EU and China, who are flexing antitrust muscles. So uh, it's a challenging time to be a global data-dominant multinational, though they're laughing all the way to the bank. With respect to the legislation, some of the proposed bills, like raising fees for merger to give more enforcement resources for DOJ or FTC, feel higher percentage than uh, than some of the others, which would go as far potentially as forcing the breakup or divestiture of previously merged entities. They feel tough to get legislatively. Uh, as for the competition policy EO, the three things I would observe are first, the people behind it. It's led by Tim Wu. Uh, he wrote the book, The Curse of Bigness. His whole career has been focused on the neo-Brandeisian post-Chicago school. There is a uh, there is lack of competition, they believe, and we need to change the rules, worldview. And people like Wu have served before. So this isn't his first rodeo. He understands what government can do. He understands what it failed to do last time. The proposal is very much of an all-of-government proposal, every agency, not just FTC and DOJ, and far more than tech companies are in their gun sites. Does tech take this seriously? Do, do they really think the government, and I'm talking about the big, uh, now multi-trillion uh, dollar companies, do they really think the government can lay a glove on them? Because I, I don't see any evidence that they do. I think there's concern. The thing that I've been picking up where, where there is concern, particularly about some of the bills, uh, Dean, is some of the possibly unintended consequences that would affect future innovation in our economy. And, I, uh, you know, these bills, uh, you know, sort of were introduced and then rushed through uh, markup in the House pretty quickly. And I'm hearing from more members who, while they do have concern about the some of the larger tech companies, but don't want to um, stifle innovation in uh, in Silicon Valley, in the uh, Research Triangle, in your home state, and in other places here to make sure that future technological innovations and future job creators still have that opportunity here in, in the United States. I'd answer that 
they are taking it seriously, even though the market is rewarding them with the highest valuations ever. Right. You know, and Dean, remember history. You know, the the biggest tech company of its era, Unstoppable Standard Oil, got broken up. IBM um, wasn't broken up, but the 12-year antitrust lawsuit caused them to move software out, which allowed for the birth of Microsoft. AT&T, broken up. Microsoft, like IBM, was able to fend it off, but they missed a lot of the internet because they were a bit frozen in place. So do I think the big uh, fang companies are going to get broken up? That's that's a tough putt. But is the scrutiny on them around the world and within Washington high enough that it may force them to be less bullies and create more competitive opportunities for alternatives? You bet. You know, it raises an interesting question, too. We're, we're going to come up and mark the six-month anniversary of the Biden administration since he was sworn in January 20th. Uh, we're, we're halfway through the year. Who is Joe Biden, uh, Bruce or David? Who is he? Is he the moderate he sold himself as, or is he a radical in a boring old man's disguise? Yes. The answer is, is, is all of the above. I mean, first, he's both presented a moderate, willing to work with Republicans uh, face, and he's presented a very aggressive, progressive face. You know, we said this at the start. Joe Biden, I don't believe, is ideological. He's not historically, if you take a look at his career, he's neither been a, a lifelong, more conservative moderate, nor has he been a uh, super liberal guy. Find the center of the Democratic Party, and that's where you'll find Joe Biden. When he was elected, he was at the center with post-Watergate radicals. When he was, uh, Bill Clinton was president, he was, you know, a, a very comfortable with where the um, DLC was. When Barack Obama was president, he was pretty much right there in the center of the Obama administration. The Democratic Party has continued to go further left. And as always, Joe Biden, you know, who is a, a lifelong and su- very, hell, as successful as you can get as a politician— Find me the parade. I'm going to the front of it. And that's where I think we find it. I think six months in here, what has impressed me most about Joe Biden is his focus on on the job at hand. I think he's the I think he's the man of the moment. And I think it's paying off for him. Like his approval ratings remain high. I think people appreciate what he's gotten done, which is tackling COVID and uh, rebuilding the economy. Are we done with both of those yet? No. Is it possible we could have issues with inflation or the Delta variant or others? Sure. But that's sort of what a president does. That's what leadership is. You stay focused on the big things. You hire good people around you to handle the things that don't arrive at the Resolute Desk. And so six months in, I I expect the White House team has to be pretty happy about where they are. And I expect the president is as well. Well, they're still going to have to get something uh, across the floor, big, signed into law, on the president's desk. So many more issues, voting rights, police reform. Uh, we got ransomware attacks out there, but uh, we're pledged to cover 2021 in 21 minutes. So I'm going to end right here with uh, just a real quick prediction. Bruce, I'll start with you. Two tracks, bipartisan infrastructure, partisan infrastructure, by the time they leave for the August break, whether that's the first week in August or the second week in August, what do they have done on either track? Senate has passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and the Dems have passed in both chambers the reconciliation budget instructions, which is not the same as the underlying bill, which I think will be a lot harder. I thought you were going to ask, Dean, how many gold medals will America win? <laughs> we'll save that for next time. David? 
Stop the presses. Uh, I am going to agree with my uh, colleague 100%. Hey. I think Bruce just nailed it. And I think if Joe Biden and uh, Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi have that done, whew, that's a pretty good uh, way to kick off the August recess and they can take the rest of the month off. I don't think Nancy Pelosi is the most essential human being on planet Earth, though. So we differ on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we are underestimating the speaker once again. Bruce. I mean, come on. How many times do I have to tell you? Good Lord. All three of us agree that they're going to make progress on both tracks here before the August breaks, which means it's all going to go to shit here real soon. Bruce Melman, David Thomas, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you, Dino. Thanks, Dean.